Back in the early 1900s, a French engineer and mining company executive named Henry Fayle published a work that was later translated into English as General and Industrial Administration. And this English translation achieved wider distribution and notoriety than the French original, bringing his 1916 ideas to a fairly large 1949 audience. His ideas were focused on the mining industry, which was something he knew a great deal about. And more specifically, he defined in this publication a fairly comprehensive theory of management, which could be applied to other fields as well. This theory defined the main categories of work-related activities, the functions that should be performed by people in managerial positions, and principles that should guide the administration of these functions, including how the folks being managed should be managed. Some of these concepts are today familiar to most modern workers, primarily because of their near-parallel explication by an American engineer who focused on the steel industry named Frederick Winslow Taylor. His conception of management, often called Taylorism, but which he called scientific management, is often conflated with Fordism, which is a very similar managerial approach that was used by Henry Ford in setting up the Ford Motor Company though these two American-originating managerial approaches were different in some subtle ways and also apparently evolved independently, despite the widespread assumption, contemporaneously, that Ford had based his model on Taylor's. Among the shared concepts defined and refined by these three industrialists is the idea that division of labor is vital and different employees specializing in different sorts of work should be managed and treated differently. These theories also share the assumption that having a set, well-defined chain of authority is vital, and most ideally, people within such a chain, sometimes called a scalar chain, sometimes called a chain of command, should have the smallest possible number of people above them. Ideally, just one manager, not several. The simplification of such chains was considered to be paramount because otherwise it was possible for workers to be given mixed or confusing instructions or to find themselves stuck in catch-22 circumstances where any move they make will piss off at least one of the people who decide whether they stay employed or are let go and how miserable or plush their work days will be. This also ensured that when something went wrong, it was easier to determine with whom, or at which link in the chain the problem originated, and consequently, how to make it more likely that the same problem wouldn't recur in the future. Without this simplicity, it was possible to have a chronic problem somewhere in an organization and to never be able to pinpoint its source because those at the level in which it was occurring could just point their fingers at each other, always having someone else to blame and always being able to cast doubt on solutions that were presented. Having one core authority at each level of management, in contrast, meant there was a single target for such blame. 
and thus a single person who was especially motivated to make sure their domain never stumbled so badly that they might be targeted. Also important to these and other similar theories that have been posited since the mid-20th century is the idea that authority and discipline is vital to the continuity and smooth functioning of an organization. The theory here is that even if you have perfect delegation of responsibility, and even if you have a concise, easy-to-understand chain of command, if you don't have people capable of punishing those who fail or who allow failure to persist within their realm of control, those divisions and refinements won't have the intended productivity-incentivizing effects. What's more, if authority isn't both established and clearly delineated, so everyone knows who's in charge of what and who orders whom around, the whole structure can fall apart, no matter how perfect it might be in every other regard. Because that lack of a transparent pecking order and the resultant opacity when it comes to who takes what blame, what the consequences will be for various types of missteps or failures, and who has what power over which portions of the larger metascale system can make the various levers and switches less obvious to those who are meant to be motivated by them, can slow the functioning of that system because even tiny bits of grit in the machinery can slow the entire organization down as the bureaucracy struggles to figure out who to blame and how to fix what needs fixing. And because of a, theorized at least, lack of faith in the capacity of the system to sustain itself and the knock-on effect that this lack of faith can cause people to perhaps quite rationally not commit fully to the system. After all, who wants to tie their own fate to a rusty, clunking machine that might fall apart at any moment, one with parts that you cannot see and cannot thus verify are in working order? What I'd like to talk about today is a recent move by a very high-ranking U.S. military officer that is being called into question in part because of where he sits in the U.S. government's chain of command. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Associated Press, and it's entitled, Millie Defends Calls to Chinese as Effort to Avoid Conflict. A book called Peril, written by Bob Woodward, of all the president's men, Watergate, Nixon scandal fame, and Robert Costa, a political reporter for the Washington Post and an on-screen news commentator for NBC and MSNBC, was previewed via excerpts leading up to its release on September 21st. This is one of many books written about the administration of the now-former U.S. President Donald Trump, most of them focusing on the latter half of his four-year term, and some of them focusing almost exclusively on the final days of his tenure in office, roughly beginning with the emergence of COVID-19 and then culminating in the sacking of the U.S. Capitol building by a group of Trump supporters and U.S. militia-slash-white national nationalist terrorist organizations on January 6th, 2021, and the aftermath of that, which continued until Trump left office, and which arguably still continues today. 
in late September of the same year. Each of these books were covered from slightly different angles, mostly by journalists who were on the White House beat and thus had a lot of connections in and around the administration. And almost all of them also had one-on-one interviews with Trump himself, who, despite the critical tone that is implied or overt in most of these books, seemed happy to be able to share his thoughts and spin on the questions they asked. I've read maybe half a dozen of them, personally, not this new one yet, and they're all okay. Many cover approximately the same ground. Each has at least a few revelations, primarily minor ones, that the others lacked. This book by Woodward and Costa, though, garnered quite a bit of attention, even before its release, because of a segment that describes the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, calling his Chinese counterpart and telling him that he would call back with a warning if the U.S. government decided to launch a first-strike attack on China. More specifically, Milley said, according to the book, quote, General Lee, I want to assure you that the American government is stable and everything is going to be okay. We are not going to attack or conduct any kinetic operations against you. If we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. It's not going to be a surprise, end quote. After avoiding answering questions about this call directly in the week following the divulgence of these details, General Milley has said that the calls he made to his counterpart in China were above board and fit squarely within the, quote, duties and responsibilities, end quote, of his job as the top U.S. military officer, one who doesn't command troops and primarily serves as an advisor to the president and the secretary of defense, an officer who was put in that position by Trump and who was acting, Milley has said, in the best interests of the United States. These calls, he has said, were routine, and made to, quote, reassure both allies and adversaries, in this case, in order to ensure strategic stability, end quote. The context surrounding this and implied similar calls are important to understanding what he means by reassurance and why he might consider promising to warn a potential military adversary ahead of time if an attack were to be planned against them by his own government. According to the book, Milley's first call to People's Liberation Army General Li Zhuacheng, his counterpart in China, was on October 30th, 2020, and it was during this call that he made the aforementioned very specific reassurance that the U.S. was not planning an attack, and if the U.S. did plan such an attack for some reason, he would call back with a warning. Milley has said that his intentions were to calm concerns the Chinese government had about the state of the United States, more specifically concerns that then-President Trump was becoming, according to many people in his inner circle, increasingly belligerent and unpredictable. And as his election numbers, the election that would take place the following month, as those numbers tilted increasingly in favor of Democratic candidate Joe Biden, that general vibe of moodiness and unhappiness and flailing for ways to keep hold of power and the office he occupied became more pronounced. Again, according to people who had firsthand exposure to him, often on a regular basis during this time. 
Some people within his inner circle deny that this was the case. Quite a few have spoken off the record saying that it very much was, and a handful have spoken on the record about it, providing details that paint a picture of significant volatility, with Trump doing and saying things that scared and alarmed even his previously most trusted confidants and supporters. Whatever the truth of that volatility, and however much inflation or deflation of what actually happened may have taken place between that period and the recounting of these stories to the authors of these books, the external perception of allies and adversaries alike was that things were getting tense in the United States, and that Trump might pull some kind of Nixon-like move and do some illegal things to stay president. From China's perspective, then, it makes sense that they might be wondering what sort of key adversary they'd be dealing with in the future, but also potentially whether or not they, Trump's main bogeyman for most of his tenure in office, might end up unwillingly playing a role in whatever he might be planning. More specifically, might he trigger a war with them in order to justify shutting down the election or ignoring its results, or as part of an attempt to spark patriotic feelings that could then lend him the votes that he needs to win. Again, this is speculative, and we don't have any way of knowing for certain whether talks of such options were being tossed about or not, or if they were, whether it was a joke or not, or half a joke. There is some implication that there were these sorts of talks about these sorts of ideas, along with very specific details of when and with whom such conversations took place in some of the journalism that's been done about this period. But there are a lot of reasons to be skeptical of such work, as those in the former president's orbit have a lot of reasons to gin up controversy, and in some cases to try to hurt their former boss. Now that said, any perception the Chinese leadership might have had about Trump from their interactions with him and intel about him were seemingly being reinforced at the time by a collection of what sources familiar with the matter who spoke to Axios about it called, quote, bad intelligence a combination of wag-the-dog conspiracy thinking and bad intel from bad sources, end quote. These conspiracies that spread around China got pretty specific, including at one point a piece in a Chinese government-affiliated paper about the arm patches worn by soldiers participating in an upcoming drone-related military exercise that had an image of China in the background with crosshairs over it. The paper asked if there was a chance that the U.S. was planning a first strike against the Chinese mainland under the guise of a military exercise. It was just asking questions, and the evidence for this idea began and ended with the imagery on a training exercise patch. But such was the mindset of China, and such was their distrust of the U.S. and that administration, that this was a potentiality that was being openly talked about in a government mouthpiece newspaper. What's really important here, then, is that this perception alone from this intel but also from their history with Trump was enough to put China on edge at this moment. And as we know from the Cold War era, making nuclear-armed military powers nervous is not a good way to keep the world from spiraling out of control. There's too much that can go wrong, too many things that can be misinterpreted, and too many moves that are stupid and risky and maybe even world-ending that might suddenly seem like the best of bad options if you seriously think your opponent is about to hit you first, without warning. 
Through this lens, then, Millie would seem to have justification for what he did. He was technically saying words that indicated he was willing to do something treasonous, warning a potential military foe about a military action. But those words were intended to keep that potential foe from becoming a foe, were intended to prevent a misunderstanding that could spiral into a conflict neither side wanted. Other evidence, like Millie briefing the director of the CIA and the director of the NSA, in addition to other defense officials on the call, would seem to support this framing of things. Defense officials have maintained that these calls were not made in secret, and Millie has said that he's happy to discuss the matter in whatever depth, including why he decided to handle the issue the way he did with U.S. government officials. There's another lens through which we might view this action that is more structural and stern and less interpretive, though. Through this lens, Millie defied the chain of command, overstepped his authority, and while he perhaps acted in the spirit of the law, he also acted against the letter of the law. When it comes to who's in charge of military matters, based on what we in the public currently know about what happened at least, the U.S. Armed Forces chain of command has the president up at the very top, followed by the secretary of defense, followed by regional commanders. Milley was up at the top of that structure, but not within the structure. The Joint Chiefs of Staff have no operational command authority and is meant to advise the folks with the highest levels of command not have any direct levers of control themselves. This interpretation, then, has Milley stepping out of line in a fairly dramatic way because he should not mess with the decisions made by the civilian leadership of the United States. Just by doing so, he may have weakened that very structure. Now, I think it's safe to say that most people would prefer to avoid another world war, but technically, According to how the leadership structure is set up, it should be the prerogative of the civilian leadership, mostly the president these days, but also Congress, when we're doing things by the book, to make these choices. And that means by ostensibly limiting those choices, either by making guarantees he's not in a position to make, or promising to ruin plans that the civilian leadership might make, by warning the target of a potential theoretical attack, he was doing something wrong according to the rules, even if, in this specific circumstance, it might have seemed justified and been the best available option. This has led to calls by many people, mostly on the political right, but not exclusively, to call for Milley's resignation, not his execution or exile or even imprisonment. Resignation, a punishment that indicates he knows that he broke the rules, but not a punishment that suggests he was trying to sell the U.S. to the Chinese or something like that. As of the day I'm recording this, Milley is scheduled to go in front of Congress and account for his actions in this matter on September 28th, 2021, while also explaining the decisions made leading up to the evacuation of Afghanistan, which was not considered to have been very successful by most standards, and to speak about other issues related to Trump's final days in office. And there's a chance that those two latter issues will take up most of the available time because they allow for more grandstanding and sound bites, which can then be used in the coming months leading up to the midterm congressional elections in 2022. 
That said, we also, somewhere in there, might get more clarity on these calls and the events surrounding them, as military officials have said these specific words used in the calls were not accurate in the book, and the correct ones make clear what Millie was trying to accomplish, and we may get more details on the intelligence that led to the decision to make that call, and the second call to the same person on January 8, 2021, post-election, after the initial round of disproven allegations about widespread voter fraud had been more or less put to rest, and then President Trump was reportedly experiencing something akin to a psychological fugue or breakdown, which apparently alarmed those around him, but also sparked resurgent concerns within the Chinese government about something not rational and warlike being lobbed at them across the Pacific in the final few weeks that he was in office. At the moment, Milley still has a job. Biden decided to keep him, and the White House has expressed support for his actions, though that could change depending on what he says in front of Congress and depending on whether more specifics of the matter come out, some of which might not be as supportive of the narrative that he and other officials have been portraying. That this was a choice you can choose to view unflatteringly and even criminally, but which in context was the best correct choice made by someone who was both allowed and expected to make that kind of judgment and take that kind of action. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Dialogue, The Art of Thinking Together by William Isaacs. This is a slightly older book. I believe it's from 1999, but it does a pretty good job of overviewing how to have productive conversations with people, especially when there are differing power dynamics involved or when you find you're trying to develop an understanding where there is currently not one, alongside thoughts of what a productive discussion even is, what a true dialogue looks like compared to the back and forths we might otherwise have throughout our days. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Dialogue by William Isaacs. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects at understandery.com. And do feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.